Exodus chapter 20, and we're going to start in verse 2. We're going to go back and we're going to read the first commandment. And then we're going to go ahead and read, read the second commandment. Because like Landon just said, uh, these two commandments are so uh, intertwined with one another. They go together uh, as much as uh, macaroni and cheese or any of those things. These two commandments really go together. Uh, so let's start reading in verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath and that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commands. You know, as I was thinking about how do I start uh, talking about uh, the second commandment, and as we look at idols and not making idols, one of the things that naturally I was drawn to was art. Uh, I was an art major in college. For any of you who didn't know that, I started off as an art major, was going to be an art teacher, and decided to, to go in a different direction in life. Uh, but one thing that uh, captivates me is art. So I'm going to show you a picture uh, by Rembrandt. It's called The Denial of St. Peter. It's very difficult to see it in here, but uh, you see... What Rembrandt was trying to do in this, depicting this picture, is he wanted to show the anguish of Peter. Now, behind Peter, uh, if, if, you, if the light was a little darker in here, you would see an image of Jesus. Uh, and he's kind of glancing over at Peter, but he's dark in the shadow. And one of the things that Rembrandt was challenged with was, <clears throat> am I making an idol of Jesus by depicting him in a painting. One of the things that he struggled with, some of the things that some of the people who were around him would critique that is that you don't want to paint a picture of Jesus because that might be an idol. Or I was going to bring out and put up a, a Christmas decoration, a manger scene. And you say, oh, this is an image of, of Jesus. Would this be considered idol worship? And we could go on to movies such as uh, The Passion of the Christ. And I know many of you have seen that. And is an actor portraying to be Jesus Christ, is that an idol? Would that be idol worship? Would that be breaking the second commandment? Um, I just want to challenge you, uh, look up that picture and, and see it now. Obviously, this was not a huge deal with Rembrandt because you can go back and look at some of his other artwork and he's very Jesus on the cross and Jesus playing with children and, and so many uh, different paintings where Jesus is the center figure. Uh, but let us not mistake it. We are all natural born adulterers. And it's very important that we admit that up front. The reason is we will worship. We are created um, by God, so therefore we will worship. We will find an object on a shelf. We will find an object at the altar. We will either look in the mirror 
or we will worship someone in heaven. We will worship someone. And it's very important as we begin this lesson to understand that created in the image of God, we were created to be worshiping beings. So therefore, we will worship. It's just a matter of what will you worship. And how you worship matters almost as much as Almost as much to God as whom you worship. Uh, Number one commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. That is the most important. But the second one follows suit pretty closely in that. You better worship the right God. But you better worship the right God the right way. Because it's important. And why does it matter? Let's look at some reasons why it matters. Let's look at what does the second commandment mean. There's four parts. First part is the rule. The rule is simple. Don't make any idols. Webster's Dictionary says that an idol is a representation or a symbol of an object of worship, a false god, a likeness of something, obsolete, pretender, imposter. So an idol is something that is crafted by human hands, crafted by a tool, made uh, by human hands, um, as a representation of a divine being. It didn't mean that the Israelites were forbidden to create art. As we're going to see in Exodus chapter 31, God is going to give very specific instructions on some artistic ways to decorate the tabernacle. On some, and that was with gold and silver and bronze and, and very skillfully crafting the tabernacle to be honoring to God. So it's not that they were forbidden to create art. But they were definitely forbidden to create art as objects of worship. And, and that is with any art. If any type of art, if, if a crucifix of Jesus hanging on your wall causes you to worship that rather than the one true God, then it's an idol. And that goes for anything in our lives. Uh, a painting or a movie, if it causes you, if you get more emotional watching the Passion of the Christ around Easter time, then you do the other 364 days of the year walking with Christ daily, then I would say that that's probably an idol. And you need to uh, take a serious look at that and, and see what that means in your own life. So it does not uh, rule out making things, but only making things that serve as objects of worship. And then the second part, it says, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. Uh, God may appreciate the artistry. He may appreciate the craftiness. But he will not tolerate adultery. And the rule is clarified in the list of the kinds of idols that God forbids. Verse 4, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or on the earth beneath. That is in the water underneath the earth. Nothing in the sky, nothing on the ground, nothing in the sea. And last week Landon hit on this a little bit when we think about where God's people had come from. Out of Egypt. And we thought to think about the Egyptian gods that they must have seen day in and day out. There's a few pictures of some that they may have worshipped behind me. And But they worshipped these deities. These deities that were half man, half animal. Um, and the different gods that those represented. And different uh, things that they worshipped them for. Uh, gods of fertility and gods of, of the land and gods of the, of the river, of the, of the 
Nile and all those things. And all of those gods had specific things that they wanted them to do. Those little G-gods. But the one true God let his people know straight up front, I'm not going to tolerate this. I'm not going to tolerate you bowing down, bending a knee, or your heart to any other gods but me. So why? So first we have the rule. Let's look at the second, the reason. Verses 4 and 5. You shall not make for yourself a carved image for the Lord your God. uh, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. God forbids adultery because he is jealous. Because of his jealousy. You know, jealousy is oftentimes painted in such a negative connotation. When someone's jealous, it's usually because they see something that they want that they cannot have. So therefore, they are jealous. Um, I think a more appropriate word may have been zeal in this situation. Uh, So... Jealousy being tied to envy, jealousy being tied to desire, uh, to have something that you want. However, when something really does belong to you, there are times when it needs to be uh, protected. A holy jealousy, if you will. You know, it would be like if I came home tonight after uh, church and uh, my wife is already at home with the kiddos. And let's say I walk in in the door and there's my wife in the arms of another man. Hopefully, I would be jealous of that, right? All you other guys are like, yeah, that would be bad. Uh, And rightfully so. That would be a holy type of jealousy. And God feels the same way about his people. Uh, His commitment to us is total. His love is exclusive to us. His love is perfect. Or, in other words, his love is jealous. So when we say that God's love for us is jealous, and when God says you are not to worship idols because I am a jealous God, that is what that means. Riken says it best like this. Godly jealousy is not the insecure, insane, and possessive human jealousy that we often interpret, uh, interpret this word to mean. Rather, it is the intensely caring devotion to the objects of his love, like a mother's jealous protection of her children or a father's jealous jealousy to guard his home. And if that's what jealousy means, then God has to be jealous. He loves us too much not to be jealous for us. So this immediately took me to Aaron. Uh, if you want to flip over to Exodus chapter 32, you can follow along here. But to paraphrase, we see Aaron. Moses goes up to the mountaintop. Aaron is left down uh, at the bottom of the mountain with the people. And he starts collecting jewelry. And they start molding this golden calf. And it's amazing how many times you will see in this story that God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of slavery. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Who is taking you to a land that's flowing with milk and honey. And check out verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who have brought you up out of the land of Egypt. 
And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. So yes, God is jealous. Okay, And Moses here, one point I want you to get across here is that these guys were worshiping Yahweh. They even called the calf Yahweh. They were worshiping the one true God. But they were worshiping the one true God the wrong way. And God was hot. And he said, Moses, get out of my way. I'm about to wipe them out. And I'll start over with you. Now, of course, if you keep reading, who knows? Moses becomes a mediator in between God and the people. And he talks on their behalf and... We'll get to that here again here in a second. So first you have the rule. Second, you have the reason. Number three, you have the warning. The warning. Verses five and six. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the father on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. This is one of the most difficult parts of reading this scripture, of trying to figure out how to teach this scripture, of what to say. Children will be punished for the sins of their fathers. Whoa. What does that mean? And what I want you to understand is one thing that this scripture is not saying is that your children will be punished for something that you have done. Al Mohler said it like this. Idolatry will have a long-lasting effect on a person's descendants, even on great-grandchildren or great-great-grandchildren. The text does not say that God holds one's descendants, a son or a grandson, personally responsible for his father's sin. Nor does the text say that the generational extension of punishment has anything to do with the legal administration of justice. But the text does hold out the threat that one's descendants may suffer for their parents' sin. Uh, and I f- looked and looked and looked and I finally found the perfect example in God's Word. 2 Chronicles chapter 26. If you have a Bible, flip over to 2 Chronicles chapter 26. And we're going to have a great example in the Old Testament that when you worship God, when you worship The one true God, Yahweh, the wrong way. It will result in teaching your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren to also worship God in the same wrong way. So, in 2 Chronicles chapter 26, you're going to have where King Uzziah is taking over the kingdom. He's 16 years old. And if I'm wrong on that, uh, Landon can let me know I was wrong on that later. But I believe it said he was 16 years old when he takes the kingdom. He becomes king over the nation of Israel. And at that time, he did some amazing things. Getting rid of the Baal worship. Wiping out a lot of God's enemies. And in there it says, King Uzziah did what was right in the sight of the Lord. But then, verse 16. 26, 16 says, but when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. 
Now, how did King Uzziah sin? Did he cuss? No. We're going to talk about that next week, right? Uh, Did he commit murder? No. Did he commit adultery? No. He sinned by worshiping. He sinned by worshiping the one true God. He sinned by worshiping the one true God the wrong way. He burned incense in the temple, and that was the job of the priest. Uh, Picking up in verse 17. But Azariah the priest went in after him with, check this out, with 80 priests of the Lord who were men of valor. And they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for you have done wrong. And it will bring you no honor from the Lord God. Then Uzziah was angry. And he had a censer in his hand to burn incense. And when he became angry with the priest, leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priest in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. He thought he had the right as king to worship God any way he wanted to. Now let's look at his son. 2 Chronicles chapter 27. Starting in verse 1. Jotham was 25 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jerusha, the daughter of Zadok. And and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all his father Uzziah had done. So, check it out. He had done all that was right with the Lord. But notice the rest of the verse. Except... He did not enter the temple of the Lord. So, he was a good king. He was a moral king. He did things right. But he refused to go to the house of God. He is like a man today, in my opinion, who says, I believe in God. I'm a Christian. I pray. I read my Bible. But he refuses to go to church. Turned off by the church. This happened to my dad, so therefore, I'm good with God, but I don't want to go to church. Something that happened because of the father's disobedience. Now let's watch with the next generation. Uzziah's great-grandson, 2 Chronicles chapter 27, verse 9. And Jotham slept with his fathers, and he buried him in the city of David. And Ahaz, the son, reigned in his place. Let's keep reading. Chapter 28. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. As his father David had done. But he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He, made, he even made metal images for the Baals. He made offerings in the valley of the sun at Hinnom. And buried, excuse me, and burned his sons as an offering. According to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings in the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. So. And then let's, let's read in verse 24. Skip down just a few verses. And Ahaz gathered together the vessels of the house of God and cut in pieces the vessels of the house of God. And he shut up the doors of the house of the Lord. And he made himself altars at every corner of Jerusalem. So he shut the doors to the temple 
so that not only he and his family could not go in, wor- in worship, but so that no one could go into the temple and worship the Lord. And it all started by a daddy. If you, great-grandpa, worshiping the one true God the wrong way. Worshiping God the wrong way has consequences to your children, to your grandchildren, and so on. And if you uh, worship the one true God the wrong way, it does have consequences in your family. And you may not see it immediately, but down the road it will have a lasting effect. So this is, that's kind of a hard thing to read and a hard thing to wrap our mind around that God will continue to do that in, down our family line if we do not honor the Lord, honor the Lord with worshiping the one true God, but also worshiping Him the right way. Let's look at the last part, the promise. Verse 6. He says, But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. The promise is more powerful than the warning because it, its blessings last longer And it's not just for three or four generations, but for thousands. Or in other words, it will last forever. You know, back in Genesis chapter 17, uh, we see that God creates his covenant with Abraham. He says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you uh, throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. To be God to you and to your offspring after you. But God's warning in the second commandment may seem very discouraging to someone who comes from a family background who does not honor the one true God. Uh, to be honest with you, I was raised in a, in a, in a home where uh, we didn't talk about God. We didn't go to church. The only time that God was ever mentioned to me and, and my siblings was when we did something wrong. And you really hurt God's feelings. And we felt bad, of course. Uh, But that's when God was mentioned, when we were in trouble. So it was kind of disheartening to think about what could have been. But the good news is God has made a promise. Because we can see the cycle of a family uh, broken and turn a family from hatred towards God into hearts that love and worship the one true God. In the same way that Abraham was selected to be the father of this nation. He, he was a, an idol worshiper. He worshiped idols. He came from a very pagan land and God handpicked him. said, let's leave. I'm going to show you what I'm going to do with you. I'm gonna, your descendants will be as numerous as the, uh, the stars in the sky. And I will be with you forever. And God's promise was greater than, um, than, than the other. So are you being faithful to the call that Deuteronomy 6 gives us? Um, Because when I did stop and think about my family personally, uh, one of the things that Catherine and I have committed to do to one another is every day we're going to talk about God. Every day we're going to pray with our children. We're going to pray before meals. And not just when it's out in public and convenient. We're going to do it at all times. And... We are going to teach our children in the, ways of, in the ways of God. So that in return, they will teach it to their children. Just like Deuteronomy chapter 6. And this just so happens to come on the heels of the Ten Commandments being in Deuteronomy 5. 
So I think this is important. And, and, and as we read Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting in verse 6, he says this. And these words that I have commanded you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit at your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and you shall be uh, as the frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. God's promise is everlasting. And so um, I don't want us to ever get stuck um, looking at the second commandment and going, this is about worshiping idols. This is about worshiping carved images. This is about worshiping all of these other little G-gods. Corey, I don't struggle with that. It's not my thing. We just go on to the third commandment. I don't, this isn't one of my struggles. Uh, next. Uh, but I want us to see the importance of why these idols are dangerous and a few thoughts about what those idols may look like in your own life. So let's look at this. Why are idols so dangerous? Number one, idols imply finitude. This finite, an idol is a material thing. And you can't uh, think of an infinite God uh, and try to put him into something that is created. Uh, When we think about his attributes, he not only knows, he's all-knowing. He's not only powerful, he's all-powerful. He's not only holy, he's infinitely holy. He's not only merciful, he's infinitely merciful. And when we try to dumb God down into this created image, whether it be a painting, whether it be a statue, whether it be anything else in our lives, whether it be our church, whether it be any other thing, uh, we can never come close, so, so we shouldn't try. So idols are finite. They're created, and we should not try to uh, put God's image on those. Number two, idols imply fabrication. The commandment begins with, you shall not make. We make things by nature. I'm going to prove it to you. Look at this picture of my son. I bought him some Legos one birthday, and and immediately he stands on top of the Lego. The hardest part about this was keeping him off the table. I'm like, you're going to fall and bust your face, right? We all say that, but we make things. We make things tall. We, uh, when we do create things, we want to show it off. We want to brag. It made me think of uh, Castaway, the movie Tom Hanks, where he gets deserted on an on an island, and. He realizes I have to make fire to stay warm, to cook fish, because fish is not good, not cooked. And he makes fire. And if you remember the scene, of course, he's half crazy because he's been by himself for, by himself for so long. But he's like, I have made fire. Look what I have created. And he's talking to himself. And he even points to God, look, I created this. He was proud of himself. And, and I think if I ever made fire with two sticks, I would be pretty pumped about it too. I'm not going to lie. But... But speaking of fire, flip over in your Bible to, chap, uh, to Isaiah chapter 44. <laughs> you know, I love the book of Isaiah. That's why I named my son Isaiah. And one of my favorite parts of Isaiah is how he is going to make fun of the people for their role in idol worship. Chapter 44, starting in verse 15. 
He's talking about how uh, the people are going to take a tree. Check this out. Verse 15. He takes a part of it, the tree, and he warms himself. He kindles a fire and he bakes bread. He also makes a god and he worships it. He makes an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire and over half of it he eats meat. He roasts it and he is satisfied. Also he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. Verse 17, and the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol. And he falls down to it and worships it. And he prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my God. You know, we read that and we're like, that's silly. That's just silly. But Isaiah is making fun of them because this is what's happening. They're taking trees and with half of it they're cooking dinner. With half of it they're, you know, staying warm by the fire. And with the other half they're carving this image and they're falling down and saying, you know what? You've delivered me. You are my God. Moeller in his book calls this insanity. And it is insanity. So idols imply finitude. Idols imply fabrication. Thirdly, idols imply control. Idols imply control. You can pick up an idol. You can put down an idol. It's at our disposal. You can fashion it to whatever you want it to look like. You can move it. You can cover it up. You can topple it over. And even if you're hungry, you can destroy it and cook with it, right? What If it's not doing what you created it for, you can destroy it. So it implies when you have an idol, it implies that it implies control. And a God we can control is no God at all. Number four, idols imply need. Idols have to be fed. Idols have to be clothed. Idols have to be housed. Uh, The God of the Bible is a jealous God. He is jealous for his own namesake, for his own glory, for his own character. We think about who made who. You know, it, this immediate, it's pretty sad that I uh, linked movies to idol worship because it makes me think of movies when I think of all these things. But I thought of Clash of the Titans and how the Titans were weak until they could get the prayers of the people, right? Or uh, Elf. Anybody watch Elf at Christmas time? Hate to attack it, but let's just go here, right? Santa Claus. He cannot get his chariot or whatever it's called, his... What's it called? Yeah, that thing. His sleigh. He cannot get his sleigh to fly without faith of the people. They don't believe. So therefore, your sleigh's not going to work. Your reindeer's not going to work. Because people just don't believe anymore. There's no more Christmas cheer. So therefore, it's not going to work. But then that begs the question, who made who? Right? Who needs who? Um... And many, one group that is guilty of this were the prophets of Baal in the days of Elijah. So 1 Kings chapter 18. Let's look at this showdown between the prophets of Baal and the one prophet of God, Elijah. So we have this showdown that happens. We're going to meet up here and... Uh, They bring two bulls, and what we're going to do is you prepare your sacrifice. And Elijah says, I'm going to prepare my sacrifice. You guys make an altar. I'll make an altar. We'll prepare the sacrifice. And what we'll do is we will call out to our God. And whoever's God can consume the sacrifice, that God is true. 
And Elijah is going to uh, make fun of these prophets for what they, how they act and what they do. First uh, Kings 18, starting in verse 26. It says, And they took the bull that was given to them, and they prepared it. And they called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon. They said, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice. No one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Well, cry aloud, for he is God. He is a God. Either he is musing, maybe he's daydreaming. Just get your God's attention. He's daydreaming. Or maybe he's relieving himself. Yes, he literally says, maybe he's in the bathroom. Maybe he's on a journey. Maybe he's on a trip. Perhaps he's asleep and he must be awakened. When you really think about Elijah mocking them in this way, maybe your God's asleep. That implies a need. And we'll talk about that in a minute. So, and they cried aloud and they cut themselves as after their custom and sword, with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And at mid, as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of oblation. And there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Again, just the mockery of Elijah to the prophets of Baal. The one true God doesn't need anything from us. Okay, And as we know that the one prophet of Elijah is going to call down fire. And not only does it um, um, completely consume the offering, but it consumed the altar. It consumed the, the water that was in the trench that they doused it with. And we just have this ultimate showdown in which God didn't need anything. Number five, idols imply physicality. There is a shape and a form to an idol. God makes it very clear in the Bible that he has no likeness and he will not be worshipped in this way. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses bringing the people back to, to Orb and he says this, And you came near and you stood at the foot of the mountain while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud and gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words but saw no form. There was only a voice. When we think about idols... They imply something physical. And we should not make or attempt to make a God, into a, a God into a form that can be worshipped. And that is exactly why God chose, has chosen not to ever reveal himself in, in that way to us. Uh, lastly, idols imply the visual. Idols are seen but not heard. Uh, God... The one true God, Yahweh, is heard yet not seen. We are so attracted to visual stimulation in our culture today. That's why, uh, and it's not just in our culture. When you go all the way back to Genesis, we think about when Eve looked at the fruit in the garden and she saw that it was good for food and it was a delight to the eye. She desired it. Of course, she wanted to be like God, wanting to know the difference between uh, right and wrong in that manner. So she looked at it with her eyes and she desired it. She wanted it. And 
idols imply just a visual uh, stimulation that comes with those idols. Uh, Jesus to doubting Thomas in Luke chapter 20 says this. Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me yet have believed. So we have seen what this commandment means and what it implies. Now let's take a look at how Jesus fulfills this commandment fully. Let's look at Jesus' act of obedience. Uh, Turn to Matthew chapter 4. We're going to talk about Jesus being tempted uh, in the wilderness. Satan was very cunning, uh, very uh, tricky as he comes to Eve and tempts Eve in the garden to eat of the fruit that God had commanded them not to. And Satan was even more cunning in his attempt to lure Jesus into idol worship. So Matthew chapter 4, we're going to be starting in verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Uh, Let me just stop there. I fasted recently for about 30 hours. And it was miserable. I'm just going to say that. So for 40 days and 40 nights, I would be hungry too. Let's just keep going. All right. Verse 3. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and said to him, uh, set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God... Throw yourself down, for it is written. Satan's going to attack him with scripture here. He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, All of these I will give to you, if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him alone shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. You know, three idols um, that we might not necessarily see as idols, but this is exactly how Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness. Um, And they're not carved out of uh, any form. They're not in any form or or image that we would say, this is my idol. But Satan um, didn't use these carved images to tempt Jesus. Let's look at what he did. Jesus never, how Jesus obeyed was Jesus never fell into into the worship of idols. He never fell into the worship of idols, number one, when, when tempted with fleshly desires. The first thing Satan tempts Jesus with is stuff, things, the easy solution, going with the flow, the comfortable life, you know, money. All of these things can be idols in our lives. And Satan knew how and the best ways to tempt Jesus. And he knew that he was hungry and he knew that it was be very, he knew who he was. So therefore, man, turn this stone into some bread. I know you're hungry. Yes, I am hungry, right? Uh, 
And Satan knew exactly how to tempt Jesus. And Jesus overcame that. He did not fall into the worship of idols. And he tells him, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Secondly, Jesus never fell into worship of idols when tempted by power. You know, it was not enough that Jesus... um, When Satan came with him with the first temptation, Jesus quoted scripture. And next, Satan's going to quote scripture to try to trip him up. He says, well, God said, uh, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. Psalm 91. Also Psalm 91, he says, "On on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. In the same way that he tempted Eve, did God really say? He does the same thing with Jesus. You know what? God said he would protect you. So you know what? Jump. His angels will protect you. Let's see if God is lying or not. And then, of course, Jesus uh, says from Isaiah, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So he didn't fall, he didn't fall into the Temptation of fleshly desires. He didn't fall into the temptation of power. Thirdly, Jesus did not fall into into the worship of idols when tempted with glory, worship and glory. Satan knew uh, what Jesus was about to do. He knew that, but by this I mean he knew why Jesus had come. And... He knew that Jesus was there to do the will of the Father. And he knew he was going to have a difficult time with that. And I know Jesus, uh, when we see him in the garden, sweating great drops of blood. uh, The weight of sin being placed upon him. It must have been very heavy. But we see here that Satan throws out that, you know what, you don't have to go through all that. I'll, look, look at all this kingdom. Look at everything all over the world. I will let you be the Lord and the king over it all. All you have to do is bow down to me. It's like Satan is saying, I'm giving you the easy way out. You don't have to take this road. This one's a lot easier. All you have to do is bow down to me. Jesus never fell into that worship of that idol. Because, ironically, when we really stop to think about it, all the worship belonged to him. All the glory belonged to him anyway. He didn't have to bow down to receive it. He will receive it. And he knew that. It belongs to him anyway. But Satan was trying to give him the easy way out. And Jesus did not fall into the worship of idols when he was tempted in the wilderness or any other time in his life. He obeyed God fully. So what do we do with this commandment? What do we do with the second commandment? Uh, First, like I said earlier, it's good for us to understand that we are all natural born idolaters. John Calvin said that our hearts are a perpetual factory of idols. Last week Landon used a quote by Al Mohler and I'm going to use it again. It says, there is only one God. And only one way to know this God, and that is through Jesus Christ. Through him and for him. So, today as 
you think about your life, uh, I want you to be careful that uh, we not place anything uh, in the place of God in our lives. When we think of that place where uh, it belongs to Jesus, our worship, our lives, everything that we have belong to him. Uh, And I don't ever want us to be guilty of putting stuff or money or riches or fame or popularity or just the ease of life in, the, the, in our hearts, in that place where Jesus belongs. For when we do that, it is definitely adultery. So I pray and I hope that if we do have any idols that we might, may not see as idols, that we would look at our lives, we would look at our lives very specifically and say, if there's anything, Lord, that is more important than you, show me and help me to remove that idol out of my life.